Blog Talk Radio. December 16th, 2012 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of current events and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and joining me here in the studio is cartoonist Bosch Faustin. Today, we would like to discuss with you the following topics. First of all, Gerard Depardieu's tax revolt. Uh, not only did we hear what the Prime Minister and President of France thought of Depardieu and others who are leaving France due to their exorbitant top tax rate of 75%, we now have a response from Depardieu, and I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, second story that I want to talk about is a vast new government database or assembly of government databases that they want to scan as a counterterrorism measure, our federal government, of course, trying to protect us. But the only problem is that database contains vast quantities of data about people who aren't suspected of any crime or any terrorism whatsoever. What do you think about that? I've also got some answers to why stuff like this even happens in the first place and what we can do about it. So I think you might find that heartening. Third, distraction. Do we live essentially in an era of distraction? Primarily at work is what we're going to talk about, but I think in in all of our lives, I think that there's a lot of things that make us prone to distraction, so we'll discuss that as well. We have a couple other topics. If you want to join in on the discussion, you can do so by phone, 760-888. 5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Or you can join us in the chat room. I see that we've got a number of people in there. So you can go ahead and type something in and uh, test out the uh, the chat room and, and tell me what you think about our topics. I do want to say uh, just something very briefly at the beginning. I don't want to talk about this too much because I, I have this idea that you know, again, this show is called Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's named after the 1971 essay by Ayn Rand called Don't Let It Go, which is the last essay in her book, Philosophy Who Needs It. In that essay, she talks about the American sense of life and how the American sense of life is the thing that protects us, preserves us from falling into statism. And, you know, I've, I've kind of pitched this show at the beginning as a show that was going to help promote and protect the American sense of life. And I think a lot of times it devolves into the politics of the day. And I would like to, I mean, and I don't think the politics of the day is inimical to preserving the American sense of life. In fact, if we discuss the political and current event issues of the day from a rational perspective, I think it can help to preserve it. But I think that there are other things that we can do as well. And one of the things I I like to think about in connection with all the coverage and discussion of the massacre in Newtown, Connecticut this week is I like to think about the quotation from Ayn Rand where she says, never think of pain or enemies longer than is necessary to fight them. So in that vein, let me just say something very brief about this. Uh, First of all, uh, 
Oh, I'm wondering if people are not hearing our show because someone is in the chat room with a question mark. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, please type. We're starting an hour earlier than usual. Yeah, we are. Uh, so from here so on. type type here in the in the chat room if you are, if you are hearing me. I want to know that everything's going okay. Excellent. Okay, so okay, we're we're doing fine. Okay, so um, first first of all, in terms of this massacre, it's true just like every time that we hear about something horrible like this there was a horrible shooting in Oregon not yeah. not too long ago as well if you watch the news all the time you think that this is i think a more common occurrence than it is i think even today where i do believe that incidents like this are becoming more prevalent it's still a fairly rare event but yeah. in the news media you don't get that impression at all no. uh something else what is it that is failing to give people like Adam Lanza, the shooter in this case, the resources to deal with whatever problems that he has. I think the government schools and the progressive education are not doing anybody any favors. So I think, if anything, this adds a lot of urgency to getting rid of government schools. Of course, another problem is the fact that we have gun-free school zones and that nobody is allowed per I believe federal law to have a gun within a certain radius of a, uh, a school zone. You mean for government schools mainly, right? All for government yeah. schools, yeah, yeah, of course. And so that is a problem. Uh, there's also an inability for people to properly deal, I think, today with mental health issues. And I even in my mind connected it to the book that we discussed, Greg Gutfeld's The Joy of Hate. If you remember in Gutfeld's The Joy of Hate, he talked about repressive tolerance and that he would label different people as intolerant. And I think if some people advocate dealing with certain mental health issues in certain ways, uh, they might be labeled as intolerant. I think that there's maybe a little bit too much tiptoeing around yeah, I mean, in some people don't the, want to acknowledge that, that this kid has problems. Right. He's just normal. Right. So there's a, a failure to identify. Now, you know, I'm not saying government should get involved in that. Um, but, you know, one thing, of course, Parents. one thing, of course, I disagree with is that the answer is gun control. Mm. Uh, so that's obvious, too. And we've seen all those discussions all over the Internet. The only thing that I want to say, but, you know, besides just throwing all those various ideas out there, which I'm sure you've probably heard elsewhere, is just to express my sympathy for anyone who was touched, affected by this horrible massacre. And I gather that there are a lot of people because if you have 26, mm. 27 people... Family, friends. ...died, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible situation. So my sympathy for everyone out there. Bosch, did you want to say one thing about the, the politics well, of it? Well, I mean, as soon as it happened, uh, you know, Obama went out there and others went out there uh, demanding gun control. Bloomberg, the other scum. Uh, they couldn't wait to do it because they're always on that on that you know mindset. And uh, when I hear gun control, I mean, I really right now uh, we have an out of control government. So I, I literally think about gov control, government control. And uh, I tweeted about this for I don't know I, most most of that day. And you can check it out in most of my tweets at at Bosch Falston. Uh, on the Twitter. He's very active on Twitter, so if you like to follow people on Twitter who come up with clever stuff, Bosch is one of the people that you do want to follow. You can also check out his blog at Um But other than that, I think we could revisit this issue 
if and when a particular politician decides to promote a piece of legislation restricting gun ownership further than it is now. As of now, it's a bunch of talk. Well, and yes, Frankenstein. Frankenstein this morning is is actually proposing something. She is proposing yeah. something. Okay, so we'll have to take we'll have to take a look at that if it seems like it's going to seriously go anywhere at all. But other than that, I mean, you know, yes, they will propose it. Yes, we'll say that we're opposed to it and we don't think it's an answer. And then let's move on to something different. Okay? I just give, give credit. Frankenstein is a pun by Mark Levin for uh, Diane Feinstein. Yeah, definitely. There's the talk radio hosts come up with a lot of good puns, and Chris, I think no. I haven't come up with <laughs> enough yet. You have some that you yeah. uh, you donate to the show yeah. just out of your goodwill. That's so right. I'm I'm lucky for that. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about France. Everyone who recalls that the new French president Hollande, he ran on the platform, just like, you know, Obama ran for re-election on the platform of Soak the Rich. Of course, Soak the Rich in France means something a little different than it means here in the United States. The top tax bracket in France is now going to be 75% for French citizens who are making more than 1 million euro per year, which is not a whole lot more than a million dollars American, 75%. So it turns out that there are some fairly high-profile people in France who are leaving. And one of them is the actor uh, Gerard Depardieu. And so earlier this week, there was a story in the Telegraph UK talking about the reaction of various public officials in France to the news that Gerard Depardieu is going to take up residence in Belgium just over the border of France, along with, it says, hundreds of other wealthy French nationals seeking lower taxes. The article that I'm reading from is France's Jean-Marc Ayrault. Ayrault? Ayrault? Ayrault. yeah, there you go, boss. Uh, slams the flight of the greedy rich. And Jean-Marc Ayrault is the prime minister of France. And what does he say about all of these hundreds of wealthy French who are seeking lower taxes by going to Belgium? He says, quote, those who are seeking exile abroad are not those who are scared of becoming poor, Mm. end quote. And he says these individuals are leaving, quote, because they want to get even richer, end quote. How does that make any sense? You want to get richer by not having your money stolen? Exactly. You, that, the fact that your money isn't stolen doesn't make you richer. Yeah. You'd have to also invest it. And have but, then, some... but then how do they say about tax cuts? They they lose money on tax cuts, right? The government. I mean, that's that's their thinking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They think it's it's their money to dispose with. Uh, here, here's another quote from Irolt. He says, uh, we cannot fight poverty if those with the most and sometimes with a lot do not show solidarity and a bit of generosity. Oof, a bit. Now, the generosity is just agreeing to have the government take the money from without you by force without yeah. your consent. Uh, solidarity is that you just sit there and take it, I guess. And then uh, he adds, he says, thankfully, few are seeking exile to exempt themselves from being in solidarity with fellow Frenchmen. Now, Holland once famously declared, I don't like hmm. the rich, yeah. quote unquote. I don't like the rich. He how, is, how rich is he, though? 
it, 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 that's yeah. a good question. So he doesn't like himself. Know. I don't know. Uh, David Cameron, who is the UK Prime Minister, controversially pledged to roll out the red carpet for any of the French mm-hmm. residents who are trying to flee the massive tax hike. They say, hey, you know, we're happy to tax you at a much lower rate <laughs> right. and get your uh, your tax revenues over here, right? Um, Mr. Holland is not stopped at this 75% top tax rate for the people making over a million euro. He's also introduced hefty new charges on capital gains and inheritance. And there's a sharp rise in capital gains tax to the extent that the value of properties could collapse. They're actually afraid of that there in France. So what has been the reaction to Depardieu? First of all, Iralt is uh, quoted as calling the move pathetic, but let's listen to some other uh, officials there in France. Socialist Member of Parliament Yann Gallot called for the actor to be, quote, stripped of his nationality, Mm. end quote, if he failed to pay his dues in his mother country, saying the law should be changed to enable such a punishment. Then there's another official, Benoit Hamon. He is the consumption minister. What a title. (laughs) What What a a title, title. yeah. Yeah. He said the move amounted to giving France, quote, the finger, (laughs) and it was, quote, anti-patriotic, end quote. So it's anti-patriotic. You are not patriotic if you don't agree to be raped by your country. (laughs) That's right. That's it. In a stinging editorial, this article continues again. I'm reading from the Telegraph UK. It's an 11th of December article. Uh, in, in the editorial in a magazine or newspaper called Liberation, the Le- left-leaning Liberation. daily, Liberation, yeah. Uh, Liberation, I think is what because <laughs> I see Liberté, the, the, yeah. I, I'm trying to get the accent on the right syllable here, right? They called Depardieu, quote, a drunken, obese, Petit bourgeois reactionary, mm. end quote. But they still like his money, I mean. Oh, they would love to have his money. Le Monde mockingly exclaimed, quote, bravo l'artiste, end quote, which was pointing out that he had chosen to make his move on the eve of a national conference on poverty. Mm. So they are not uh, very excited about him. There is one lone voice of reason quoted in this article, someone named Jean-Francois Copé. He is the chairman of former President Nicolas Sarkozy's UMP party. And yesterday he said that the actor's departure was, quote, terrible for our country and its image, end quote. And he's calling on the socialist government to introduce, quote, progressive fiscal policies, end quote. And I love this because typically in our country we think of the progressives as the people who want to increase tax rates, soak the rich more, increase the size and scope of government, and it was funny, I was talking with Yaron a little bit earlier, and uh, Yaron Brook, for people who don't know him, he's the head of the Ayn Rand Institute, and he was saying that we think we should reclaim the word progressive, That's that right. progressive is actually Progress. putting government on the path to its uh, proper size and, and scope. And it sounds like Jean-Francois Copé is using that particular you know, use of, of progressive, a progressive fiscal policy in his mind is one that doesn't soak the rich as much yep. as as they're doing. There is a far-right national front leader, and I've heard of him before, Marine Le Pen. He said that exiles like Mr. Depardieu, they want to have their cake and eat it too. And he's saying that uh, Depardieu is going to come back running when he has a health problem and he wants to get free health care. Who knows? But 
Why do you go to Belgium? Because income and inheritance taxes are lower there than they are in France. Other people who have gone are a family, a Mouillet family, I think is how you would pronounce it. They own a supermarket chain, a big supermarket chain. And then France's richest man, Bernard Arnault, he admitted that he is applying for a Belgian citizenship, but, but, he insists that it has nothing to do with paying lower taxes. That's right. <laughs> of, course, That's right. of course not. So he, you know, he's—they're all just leaving Depardieu out there yep. to hang and dry. So then the question is, what does Depardieu do? Does he cave? I mean, really, what this is is this is again an example of what Ayn Rand called the argument from intimidation. Right. They're calling you names yep. because of a certain position that you hold, things that you're doing, and. They, they want don't, to shame you. Yeah, they don't want to actually talk about the merits of the situation, not very much at all. They, 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 it, they just the, want the, money. The, the merits of the situation are supposedly understood by everybody. It's your duty right. to just bend over and let the government do whatever it's going to do to you so that you can help the poor. Yeah. And if you don't do it, you're anti-patriotic and yeah. you know, you've just invited all of this name-calling. Yeah. So then today we have this wonderful article. Uh, the version that I have is from Bloomberg, I believe. It's December 16th, uh, 9.33 this morning. They put on Bloomberg's website headline, Depardieu says he's paid enough French taxes. And the, in the article, there's a lot of quotations from Depardieu's letter to the prime minister, Jean-Marc Arolt. Um Of course, Arolt, is recall again, he referred to Depardieu's decision to seek tax exile in Belgium, he referred to it as pathetic. And here is Depardieu's response, quote, I am leaving because you consider success, creativity, talent, anything different are grounds for sanction, end quote. He says, again, to That's continue cool. later, he says, I don't expect to be pitied or praised, but I reject the word pathetic when described, used to describe him. And he said in, in the letter that he has already paid 145 million euros in taxes over the course of his 45-year working life that began at age 14. Mm. He started working at age 14. So, no, he doesn't deserve to be rich, mm. right? Uh, he has also paid a 75% tax. Oh, yeah. And, no, they're talking about the 75% tax that's coming up. Yeah, so let me let me skip to a different part. Um, it turns out that Depardieu is in the movie that we are much anticipating, Les Miserables. He's in there? Okay. He's in there. Good, good, good. Um, uh, oh, no, sorry. He played right, uh, right, right, He right. played in a television version right, of right, Les Miserables. Right. Yeah. I'm waiting for the movie. I was so eager. I, I, was, I was thinking, if he's in the movie, right. no wonder, of course, he's doing this right, because totally. he's going to make so much money next exactly. year on Les Miserables. I mean, so that was right. the he connection may, I was making. He might thinking. play somewhat of a yeah. cameo. You never know. Um, there is a culture minister in France named Ariel Filippetti, Filippetti, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, he said that Gerard, Gerard Depardieu is abandoning the battleground in the middle of the war against the crisis, end quote. So he's saying, you have to stay with us. And what, what's you, the crisis according to him? The crisis is that government people? keeps spending too much. That's what the crisis is. I mean, all of these taxes, he, right? The he in, just shrugged. The income tax, the increase on the capital gains, et cetera. They're doing all of this to try to close right. their 3% GDP right. uh, deficit in and, their budget. That's what they're trying to do. And he's leaving, and, he, yeah. and therefore, he might inspire others. I hope he does. 
I, I hope he does. And especially because, I mean, this is the thing. It is so important for somebody who is right. well-known and well-liked in the culture yeah. to stand up for themselves right. against an overreaching government. And it's so encouraging when somebody does. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, here is a well-known, well-liked actor in France yeah. who is doing this. And name one in United States right. among American actors. Can you name one? No. No. And it, and in fact, uh, Yaron recalled to us, and Bosch Bo- remembers seeing the clip. Uh, Will Smith was basically talking about Obama's uh, policies and enjoying them and liking them and saying that they're good. And, and then basically, um, I think the interviewer told him, mentioned that, that uh, France taxes, the, yeah, the, the, assess, the 75% tax rate, and his eyes lit up. And he was like, uh, what do you say, God bless America? Yeah. I think he said, as in, we're not, we're not that bad yet. But he was for basically he was on principle for taxation against the rich until he heard how much France does, and that's when he actually pulled back. Well, I mean, I think that somebody like Will Smith should listen to that and say, "Hmm, no if doubt. we continue on the same path, that is where we are going someday. That's what's going to happen." Um, for 2012, I think it was an exit tax that made him do this. He, uh, Depardieu, had to pay tax at right. an 85% rate on his 2012 income oh in order for them God. to even let him leave. And I don't even know what the exit tax is they here in the United pay. States, but we have we have an exit tax this. here in the United States too. I doubt it's 85%, but it they might be. And they they want to discourage this because this is you know this is a brain drain, a talent drain. Whenever they Push too far, and people just say that's enough. Again, quoting from Depardieu, he he says again to Arnold, the prime minister, he says, uh, "Pathetic? You said pathetic. It is pathetic." He says, "I don't have to justify the reasons for my choice, which are numerous and personal. Who are you to judge me in this way?" End quote. I love it. I love I, it. It's, it's excellent. excellent. Um, and so then, listen to what the article says. The article says that Depardieu's departure highlights the need for France to renegotiate a fiscal agreement with Belgium. Why is it? Because they don't want people going to Belgium to get away with taxes. They want Belgium to, I guess, confiscate the money and send it back over to France. Uh, The person who's calling for this is the Labor Minister, Michel Sapin, and he was somebody who was defending the Socialist Party's tax increases. Um, And what does he say? What does Sapin have to say about Depardieu? He says... You should, uh, you know, give up your French passport. He says you no longer want to be part of the mother country anyway. And then about Depardieu, he says, I know him well. He's a man of extravagance and exaggeration, end quote. Again, this is all the argument from intimidation, just calling him names on the basis of a position that Depardieu is taking without ever addressing the underlying issue at all. No. And they're allowed to, because most of the culture does agree with yeah. that crap. But Depardieu says he's willing to just go ahead and give up his passport. But Sapin says, I would advise him to keep his passport. He says it's a personal come down that's hurtful. It's an attitude that isn't fitting the actor, end quote. Oh, my. Is it, I mean, is it, Unbelievable. It, it, the, the, Desperate. Yeah, the intimidation is so thick, it's, it's crazy. He's pronouncing his name now, Depart Du. Depart Adieu. <laughs> Depart Adieu. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Did you yeah, just come up with yeah. that? That's excellent. Depart Arju. Depart Arju. That's perfect. Um, <laughs> okay, so these high-profile ta- uh, moves, right? You think that 
the French would say, okay, all these high-profile people are leaving. Right. Hundreds of wealthy, high-profile people right. are leaving France because of the tax there's policy. Now, you, yeah, you think they'd say, well, there's something wrong yeah. here. Listen to this. It's exactly the opposite. Again, this Sapin, he's the one who's the, um, you know, defending the socialist policies, right? He says that the fact that all these people are leaving show that we have a just tax policy. End quote. Wait, wait, wait. Who said that? He said that? Yeah. Yeah. Sappen, one of the... The fr- fact the that they're leaving yeah, is... The, the fact that they're leaving huh. shows that it's just. Because they're evil. Right. Because, I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah. They're evil for leaving. That's that's that all is, it says. And shows. therefore, our policy must be good. Yeah. So they're calling with those who have the most to show patriotism, quote unquote, in tough times. Patriotism here just means willingness to sacrifice yeah. for anybody else who happens to live in the same geographic area governed by the same government. Right? Economic patriotism, you know, I mean, this is this is this, this, this that language. So bravo for Depardieu. He's a he's a great actor. I mean, I I first saw movies in the eighties. It was uh, Manon of the Spring. I think Jean de Florette. I'm probably but- butchering the names, but great films, and he was great. Now, people want you to go ahead and make a cartoon now <laughs> right. and make sure that he's got a big nose right. in the illustration. He has a big nose in real life, He does, right? and that's why when he plays Cyrano, he had a nose job to, bring it, to make it a little smaller. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> You're bad. But uh, he did play Cyrano. I mean, he's a great actor. I just I thought, you know, when I see Cyrano, I seem a little more spelt, a little a little smaller, like uh, uh, Jose Ferrer in 1950. Right, right. But he is, he is great and good for him. I mean, excellent. I, I just think it is... So important when you have a really overreach by the government, yeah. you know, a huge, horrible policy by the government, that people who are able to speak out. Yeah. And, and he did. And he clearly will inspire people quietly at first. Who knows? I mean, they're just thinking about, like, wait a minute, what's this about? Yeah, yeah. And then who, who again, is this guy who's the uh, this Bernard Arnault? He's the chief executive officer of... LVMH, which is Moet, I guess Moet and Chandon, Hennessy, Louis Vuitton, uh, that he has filed an application for Belgian nationality. You know he's doing it because of the money, but no, he doesn't want to say anything because he is intimidated by the argument from intimidation. Privately, he knows that's right, but publicly, he's like, uh, you know. So maybe what Depardieu is doing here will get other people to to grow a pair. I hope, and I hope an American actor. Yeah. As you point, out, an American actor finally comes out. Who knows? It'd be nice. You know, the, uh, um, what's his name? What's his name? The guy Wesley Snipes. Uh, he's in, he's he spent time in prison because he didn't pay taxes. So, so that, that was his protest against it. You know, he should have got the hell out. Well, and he should have said something principled about yep. it at least, right? Yeah. So in terms of reactions in the chat room, we have a lot of fans of Depardieu, but yeah. I think they were fans of his before we even heard this. Yeah. Uh, Robert, New York City, says he is one of the few actors who can play a larger-than-life hero. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, he's, he's a big guy, too. I mean, he's yeah. literally. And I'm thinking that some of the... He's a very gentle actor. It's, it's pretty funny. He's a big guy, but he is very gentle in his expression, at least on film. But perhaps his role as Cyrano did have an effect on him probably. in some way. I mean, but, prob- I mean, think about this. Did. You you, I mean, start, you start at age 14. Yeah. Yeah. And you work, and you work, and you work, and you pay a ton of taxes. And they want to make you pay more. And they're saying, sorry, you haven't paid enough. enough. You have to be patriotic. 
So uh, I'm bravo, 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 and we definitely would love to see more of this. We would love to see any of this in the United States. I, and who knows? Maybe if Obama wasn't president, he would have came here. Yeah. That's true. And you that know. you know that was one thing that I saw a, a reaction on Facebook. Okay. I think uh, uh, Chip okay, on, on he Facebook. Said that? He, I think he had said, "Well, we'd say come on over here, but, but yeah. we're going in the same direction." And isn't everybody else in the whole entire world? going in the same direction, except just maybe more slowly. There are a few steps back yeah. from France. This sounds extravagant, but I'm hoping that Will Smith, upon hearing it, said, oh, gee, maybe that'll happen in the United States someday. Right. So, other ones here. People are talking about the different movies. Play, I guess you played Columbus. Green Card. Did you see Green Card? I did. Yeah. Silly, funny. Yeah. You know. But he did a good job. Yeah. An excellent job. It, it, was, it was his first, uh, I think, American film, and it was silly. Mm-hmm. But he was good. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, he's definitely excellent. Another bit of good news that we like to talk about is, um, and actually, uh, maybe I should save that bit till the end. I think I want to save that bit till the end. Let me let me talk about this issue of databases. Wall Street Journal broke a story this week, and you can actually also read about it, I believe, on Slate.com, but I actually have the Wall Street Journal story here. December 12th, 2012, posted late at night, so it was probably in the December 13th hard copy edition of the paper. Headline is, U.S. Terrorism Agency to Tap a Vast Database of Citizens. It says, top U.S. intelligence officials gathered in the White House in March to debate a controversial proposal. It says counterterrorism officials wanted to create a government dragnet, which is just a huge database, sweeping up millions of records about U.S. citizens, even people suspected of no crime. Yep. Non-terrorists. Yeah. And then it talks about not everybody there was on board. You know, there is this woman, Mary Callahan, who is the chief privacy officer of the Department of Homeland Security. And she says, look, this is a sea change in the way that government interacts with the general public. But nonetheless, even though there was this debate, a week later, this was back in March, the Attorney General signed the changes into effect. So exactly what is going on? The rules allow a little-known what is called the National Counterterrorism Center to examine the government files of U.S. citizens for possible criminal behavior. And what it is, it's an assembly of a whole bunch of government databases about U.S. citizens. Um, And they can look at this even if there is no reason to suspect the individuals in the database. Article continues, this is a a departure from past practice, which barred the agency from storing information about ordinary Americans unless a person was a terror suspect or related to an investigation, right? And that would make sense. Now it says the NCTC, again, this National Counterterrorism Center, they can copy entire government databases, which include flight records, casino employee lists, the names of Americans hosting foreign exchange students, and many others. Says the agency has new authority to keep data about innocent U.S. citizens for up to five years and to analyze that data for suspicious patterns of behavior. So what they do is they create these vast databases. And in terms of analyzing them, they, they say, well, okay, terrorists or you know, people who are plotting to be terrorists, they engage in these types of activities. So let's examine 
these databases to see if this pattern of behavior is exhibited by any of these individuals about which or about whom we don't have any prior knowledge that they would be involved in terrorism at all. It says the changes also allow databases of U.S. civilian information to be given to foreign governments for analysis of their own. In effect, U.S. and foreign governments would be using the information to look for clues that people might commit future crimes. Clues that they Mm. might commit future crimes. There's a former senior administration official familiar with the White House debate who says that this is breathtaking, that's the word, breathtaking, in its scope. Uh, Counterterrorism officials say, oh, don't worry. This is what they say. They say, don't worry. We will be circumspect with the Mm. data. Here's the quote. The guidelines provide rigorous oversight to protect the information that we have for authorized and narrow purposes, end quote. So that's reassuring, right? Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Um, That person who was speaking was Alexander Joel, the Civil Liberties Protection Officer for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Your tax dollars at work. Yeah. Uh, the article goes on to quote the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. Searches of persons, houses, papers, and effects shouldn't be conducted without probable cause. But this just doesn't happen to cover the records that the government creates in the normal course of business with citizens. And all we have in terms of protection against this is the so-called Federal Privacy Act of 1974. The act prohibits government agencies from sharing data with each other for purposes that aren't quote-unquote compatible with the reason the data were originally collected. But then it says the Federal Privacy Act, such protection that it provides, is basically nothing. Why? Because it allows agencies to exempt themselves from all kinds of requirements just by placing a notice in the Federal Register. Here's a privacy consultant, Robert Gelman. He says, quote, all you have to do is publish a notice in the Federal Register and you can do whatever you want, end quote. Now, the question is, why do these huge databases get compiled by the government containing all this information about what we do? For instance, planes, you know, plane flights that we go on or our bank transactions, and other things like that. The government has huge databases about these things. Why is it that the government has them? And the thing I'm going to tell you, because I'm actually supposed to be an expert on privacy of some kind, you can read some of my work and decide whether I'm any good at talking about privacy. But what there is in privacy law is a doctrine called the third-party doctrine. It's called the third-party doctrine. And the doctrine arose in a very intuitive sort of situation, which is that if you have either a criminal, say there's somebody in the mob, right? You have these uh, episodes of um, Sopranos, Sopranos, right? You see in Sopranos, somebody turns government informant and takes all the information that he got from Tony Soprano and gives it over. And normally bad things happen to him. But, you know, um, (laughs) they don't like rats in the mafia, right? But... You know, the the Fourth Amendment is said not to protect a conversation between these two criminals. If you voluntarily, if you're a criminal and you voluntarily share information with this other criminal, that 
criminal can go ahead and share the information with the government without violating your right to privacy. You don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the information that you voluntarily shared with this other person. Now, again, this thinking, this principle, this third-party doctrine arose in that particular situation where you had criminal activity and you had either a government plant, you know, somebody who was a government agent who infiltrated a criminal organization, or you had somebody who was in the criminal organization decided to turn government witness. Either way, they say you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and so if that conversation is accessed, it's not a search. So that's this doctrine. Now, the doctrine was expanded to situations far outside that original situation. So, for example, it is said to apply to make valid the so-called Bank Secrecy Act. And I forget what year it was passed, sometime in the 70s. But the, the Bank Secrecy Act currently today will require banks to retain information and report to the government any bank transaction of $10,000 or more, I think in excess of $10,000. So $10,000 and one penny, you have to report it to the uh, government. All banks have to do this. So the question is, if you have this third-party doctrine and you say, okay, well, there is that very intuitive situation where the criminal shares information with somebody else and he you know, the the somebody else goes to the government, don't we want the government to be able to get that information? What would you do in order to say, yes, that's okay, that doesn't violate the right to privacy of the criminal or the would-be criminal, but on the other hand, it does violate your right to privacy if the government is coming in and requiring mandatory reporting to the government of all these activities of otherwise innocent Civilians, right? The yep. fact that you engage in a bank transaction of over $10,000 doesn't make you a, a criminal. And I think there should have to be a search warrant in these cases. So how do you do this? And the way that I do it, and again, you can go and read about my particular theory of privacy. If you Google or Bing or whatever search engine you like, some people have their favorite search engines. If you look for the title or the title fragment, Beyond Reductionism, just trust me, you have to read what reductionism is, I can't talk about it now, but Beyond Reductionism, Reconsidering the Right to Privacy, and then my name, Amy Peikoff, P as in Peter, E-I-K-O-F-F, you'll see what my theory is. But my theory, in essence, says that we should protect privacy solely through our rights to property and contract. We should give up this separate so-called right to privacy that is protected only on the basis of whether you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, we should have firm lines drawn along where property and contract rights exist. So you'd say in this case, uh, the Bank Secrecy Act, for example, I have a contract with my bank. And part of my contract with my bank is that the bank doesn't go around sharing my private financial data with anybody. My you know, financial data is protected as private by the bank as part of my contract with the bank. And I think that in a proper society, in a proper government, the government could not access that data either absent a search warrant. They need to have probable cause, particularized suspicion. They need to describe exactly what it is from the bank data that they think is relevant to the commission of a crime, etc. So you would have to come up with this warrant. 
Oh, people in the chat room are great. They went Debbie. ahead and put a link. Uh, yeah, Debbie. Thanks, Debbie, in the chat room. Uh, put a link to this article. So you can read about why I believe that that should be the way that we protect privacy. Ironically, I think a separate right to privacy results in less privacy because of that reasonable expectation mm-hmm. of privacy test. It's It's very lame. So there's my contract, right? But then you say, okay, well, in the case of Tony Soprano and one of his underlings, don't they have a contract and shouldn't that contract be protected? So right now I'm working on a paper with the answer to that question that distinguishes those cases in a way that is consistent with the common law of contract. And I think it's a a unique approach to the issue. I guess I can go ahead and tell you, don't write this law review article before I do, people. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm out there writing it. But uh, what I think needs to happen here is you need to distinguish. You sure you want to? Should I? Up to you. I don't know. I think it's fairly obvious once you you adopt a contract-based model of protecting privacy. But you would distinguish legal versus illegal contracts. So a legal, an illegal contract, according to common law, is a contract that is entered into for the purpose of doing something illegal. Right. You're, you're, you know, joining together, you're associating with somebody else for the purpose of committing a crime. That's what the contract is about. That's the subject matter of the contract. And insofar as a contract is illegal, common law says that it's unenforceable. And that designation of it being unenforceable would properly apply to any sub-agreement within the contract, including Tony Soprano and his underling agreeing to keep it all secret right. and private. Uh, you know, I, I love the things that they do in the Sopranos to try to keep things secret. Right. They go down into the basement and they turn on all sorts of loud machines and stuff to avoid the, the federal bugs from listening in on them. But, you know, the point being is that, yeah, if you've made an agreement to keep something private in the context of an overall contract you know, contract that's illegal, that contract, including that agreement about the privacy right. part, null and void, right. not enforceable. But on the other hand, my contract with the bank, yep. which is for a legal purpose, should be affected. John in the chat room says, with respect, he says, does anyone think the government is beholden to the rule of law anymore? No. I mean, we have, no, we have an <sighs> anti-constitutional government. Yeah. We do. Literally. Not right now. Right now. Not right now. No. Of course, I'm talking about what would happen in in an ideal world. So this is, it's the third-party doctrine under which the government can collect information from businesses with whom you voluntarily share data. So if you fly on an airline, you are voluntarily sharing information about yourself with the airline, and the airline can be required by the government to just turn that information over to the government, and all the government has to do apparently is publish a rule in the a rule change in the Federal Register, right. put a notice uh, in the any, Federal Register, uh, and suddenly more information has to be given over to the government. You know, something I've talked about in past shows is the fact that the Federal Trade Commission now has a backdoor into both Google and Facebook. Right, 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 right. So anything that you share with Google and Facebook, no matter how you think you're sharing it, could be given over to the government. Now, some people might say, oh, I'm innocent. I have nothing to hide. What do I care? Right. That's not the point. Nope. Nope. The point is that the government shouldn't be doing this. And insofar and as they are... And the bigger the government, the worse government. Yeah. I mean, the worse it is. 
the bigger, the more corrupt. Uh, this article, continuing a little bit of the article here, it says the National Counterterrorism Center can obtain almost any database the government collects that it says is, quote, reasonably believed to contain terrorism information, end quote. And it says the list could potentially include almost any government database from financial forms submitted by people seeking federally backed mortgages hmm. to the health records of people who sought treatment at various mm -hmm. Veterans Administration hospitals and, of course, coming soon to a hospital yeah. near you, anybody who seeks treatment anywhere Absolutely. because under Obamacare we are all connected to the federal government. So all of your health information could be given over as well. We become government property. That's their goal. Uh, the, the article goes on to say that previous Government proposals to scrutinize all these massive amounts of data in, in ways like this have been met with outrage. But not surprisingly, given the Obama administration, we haven't had this public resistance here. Why? Because it says in the article, the debate happened behind closed doors. Oh, right. <laughs> and the only way that the Wall Street Journal was able to break this story was through a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests, interviews with various officials, etc., uh, what's the origin of doing this? They had a watch list system that I believe was based at least somewhat on having particularized suspicion before they could go through various databases. And yeah, they, they think that that watch list system failed to detect the so-called underwear bomber. Remember the underwear yeah. bomber on Christmas of 2009? Right. So now, we, now we have to take off our underwear when we're in the, online, right? I'm joking. I guess. I guess that's part of it. No, but, yeah. no, but they would. They take. We take off our shoes because the shoe bomber. Mm -hmm. Why don't Why don't we take off our underwear now? Right. I mean, be, be you know, be consistent, government. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yes, coming soon. All of your information scanned by a loving government. But again, if we go back and we quote our very reassuring mm. government official, they say. You know, don't worry because the guidelines provide rigorous oversight to protect the information for authorized and narrow right. purposes. Right, and as uh, Debbie writes, you know, these people are corrupt. I mean, she, she writes, uh, the issue is not whether or not the subject of government surveillance is, is innocent. The point is that the surveyors are not innocent, absolutely. Yeah, they are somebody not. Call them, uh, they are not. Oh, we do. We've got somebody who wants to uh, chime in, I think, on this topic. Hi, did you have something to say about privacy? Uh, first of all, I want to make sure the Skype account works. Is it, are you hearing me okay? I'm hearing you fine. It's okay. Okay. Hi, I'm one of your Facebook friends. I think we've been friends for, uh, I don't know, maybe about three years or something. And I know you, you've been a pro uh, professor at the Air Force Academy. And I've been a cadet there. And uh, uh, that, uh, where we have somebody in common is a, a guy named, I think it was Mal Wigan. Uh, he had been a... Uh, Right, I've, I've, I've met him, but can you... Um, right, you anyhow, have... uh, yeah. to, to contribute to this topic, um, I guess what I'm trying to figure out how to do is um, inform more people who are outside of, let's just say, our choir of people who, you know, are very in tune with what our government is doing. And unfortunately... Too many people still have the mindset that whatever government does is, you know, well, obviously lots of people are outraged about Obama getting reelected, but they still have the mindset that there's something fundamentally good about the you know, idea of a uh, big, intrusive federal government dictating 
you know, what everybody does and, and you know, uh, controlling the economy and so forth. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute you for a second. So so is the question how to convince these people that a huge government that's gonna be invasive like this is benevolent? Is is that the question? No, no, no. What I'm trying to do is figure out how to uh, uh so many words 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 I'd like to say here and I don't think I'm gonna have enough time, but it's the idea of getting the frog to boil faster in the pot so that people know that they are being boiled alive. You know, rather than this very slow boiling that's been going on for oh, you know, seventy years or more. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, so 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 in essence, your question is, when is reality going to teach these people a lesson? Exactly, exactly. And you know, and, I have. And my answer, unfortunately, is absent the long-range education project that we have about teaching them to look at reality from the perspective of the right philosophy, yeah. reality itself can't do it. And we have seen time and again yeah. that, I mean, they, they just re-elected Obama yeah. after four years of what I thought would be a uh, startlingly clear education that they should have gotten. Uh, thanks, thanks, Steve, for calling. Steve is a first-time caller, yeah. and we always appreciate first-time callers. The sound was a little off, so it's... It yeah, the, the Skype sound was a little... Calling. Yeah, no, and I, I can understand the question and repeat it for people, so yes, please do uh, call in again, but thank you for calling in. I, I, you know, I don't think that there's any shortcuts there. I just yep. don't, because yep. we have... I mean, we had 9-11. Right. I know. And I was very optimistic directly after 9-11 that we might actually fight a proper war and get the bad guys. And they're still, and they're still, they're still out active. there. And and Obama's trying to pretend that they're not still out there and they're still out there. He's so, apologizing for them, too. Unfortunately, I I hate to say it, though, Steve, it's just I think the I'm fairly negative on, on that point. It's education and those who want to be educated. That's a big problem also. A lot of people don't want to be. Here in the chat room, they're talking about all the different uh, techniques of government surveillance, body cavity searches. I know that they've done body cavity searches on some people, yeah. but I don't know what their criteria are for triggering the body cavity search. Uh, John says, how long before Anonymous hacks the government fusion centers and various data gets published in the clear on the Internet? Yeah, of course. Of course, John. Um, I mean, that's one of the biggest dangers insofar as government agencies hold these big databases and insofar as they might be behind on the latest firewalls right. or right. anti-hacking software, I don't know all of the, the technical ins and outs. Our information is compromised. I mean, that, that's one of the scariest things about Obamacare itself is that it is creating a huge database that contains all of our health information. And that health information could, of course, be turned over as part of this with the National Counterterrorism Center. It's just one other piece of the information. Your finances, your health, probably what you're doing on Facebook, too, can be there. Again, because the Federal Trade Commission has given us a backdoor, given us, given the government a backdoor into Facebook. Any other on this? I don't think so. Yeah, and uh, in, in the chat room, Michael writes in reaction to Steve's question from the phone call. He says, no shortcut for reality to teach anything to these people. He says, I call it Cuffy Mig syndrome, being utterly unmoved by facts. Yeah. 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 And, you know, we get optimistic. Why? Because we see the facts in the context yeah. of our understanding of the world, which comes from a proper philosophy. And then we but, see uh, Election Day and I'm shocked. I mean, I was shocked. I was I was. 
disappointed. I don't say I was 100% shocked. I was shocked because I thought we still were yeah. America. I know, I know. And I realized uh, we're not. We're something else. In uh, in the several minutes that we have, I want to do a couple other quick things. Uh, one is an article that I found in the Wall Street Journal as I was looking for something else. And it was it's called Workplace Distractions. What was it? Yeah, workplace distractions. What were you doing? You were looking at your uh, phone, right, Bosch? That's right. Yeah, workplace distractions. Here's why you won't finish this article. That's, <laughs> that's the title of the article. Here's why you won't finish this article. And it goes on to talk about, you know, social media as a distraction. But it, I think it, it focuses primarily this article on email as a workplace distraction. And it talks about the various techniques that companies have done to minimize the distraction right from email into a, a worker's workday. But um, let me give you some disturbing statistics that come out of this article. It says, and I'm quoting, uh, this is Wall Street Journal from December 11th, okay? It says, office workers are interrupted or self-interrupt roughly every how many minutes? Who wants to guess mm. in the chat room? How many minutes? Are workers interrupted yeah. or self there's there's a little bit of a delay, so we're not going to get yeah. answers in the chat room for a Anyone? few more seconds. Okay. Uh, Deborah says five. Richard says three. Uh, Scott says three. Oh. I say Richard and Scott maybe either are omniscient or we're cheating <laughs> because right. it is three. The answer is three. I think that Deborah was optimistic, so she is still right. uh, a benevolent <laughs> person, right. Deborah. I'm glad that we haven't you know pounded anything out of her by telling her the bad news of the week. <laughs> Stephanie says thirty seconds. Now, how many times do I interrupt you though on the show? That's that's what I want to know. It depends week to okay. week, you know. That's, that's I'm, I try to make it a point not to interrupt this week, but maybe I have. But he can't control himself because he's so passionate yeah. about this stuff. Uh, so it says the office workers are interrupted or they self-interrupt roughly every three minutes. And this, this is academic studies that are behind this. And it says with numerous distractions coming in both digital and human forms. Then it says that once you're thrown off track by these distractions, it can take some 23 minutes mm for a worker to return to the original task. Mm. And this was from uh, Gloria Mark. She's a professor of informatics at the University of California, Irvine. She studies digital distraction. And then companies have come up with various strategies to keep workers focused. Some of them are limiting internal emails. One company wants to ban internal emails entirely, and mm. others are reducing the number of projects that workers can tackle at one time. Uh, then there are some <laughs> oh Scott in the chat room Richard. says he didn't uh, oh Richard oh, Richard says I can't respond because I have to Twitter um, you have to tweet Richard. you have to tweet <laughs> you, have right. to, you, have, you have to get That's your terminology uh, and then Scott here in the chat room says he didn't cheat he says I have never had four minutes of unbroken work so it must be three <laughs> so I guess he's done his own study and perhaps his situation is representative out there you that know, makes perfect sense uh, Debbie says, "I never open my personal email or social network sites at work." True. That's perfect. Yep. That is that is the perfect thing that you should do. Uh, some things, you know, workers consultants have said to let the importance and the complexity of a worker's message dictate whether you're going to convey that message by cell phone, by office phone, or by email. Truly urgent messages and complex issues merit phone calls or in-person conversations. Email should be reserved for messages that can wait. Right. And that's the whole but, idea. But nothing can wait. You know, that's where we yeah. are. Right? I mean, I, ideally, I think the most efficient people that I know, in my experience, 
do email about once a day, maybe twice a day. Or some even once a week, twice a week, right? Yeah, some people some. some people do that, and those are people who maybe aren't as in tune with the yeah. electronic environment of today. But I would say once a day is probably plenty for anybody, and you shouldn't you shouldn't send by email something that's that urgent. Um, it says workers now pick up the phone more, they're logging fewer internal emails, et cetera, and they get clarity on what's urgent and what's not. If people do that as well, they've some companies have had to institute a no device policy during team meetings, et cetera. Uh, one thing that I found disturbing in this article is that <laughs> there was one company, Intel, that said that they were going to deal with this problem by giving them a certain number of hours per week of think time, think time, where workers are not expected to respond to emails, they're not expected to attend meetings unless it's urgent, or if they're working on collaborative projects. So you're just going to have this unbroken think time. How many hours per week do you think they get of think time at Intel? Only four. So think time is so important, but only four per week. You'd think maybe you'd get like... Four per day exactly. would be nice. Right. Office workers aren't the only ones struggling to stay on task. Apparently, in other work environments, they have given workers too many projects at the same time, and it's the same issue. So I found that interesting. If you want to go take a look at it, but I would say stay off your Facebook and your Twitter if you're trying to get something done and be productive right. in the world, and you will have a much more benevolent outlook, as does Deborah right. in the chat room. She is awesome. Yes. Um, We've got a few more minutes, and I wanted to have one more positive topic before we go, and it is the Superman trailer that got released earlier this week and a particular controversy that's arisen as a result of a line in that trailer. So so tell us about it. uh, The new Superman film is called Man of Steel. comes out June of next year. And uh, Chris Nolan, the uh, director of the Dark Knight films, is producing it. He also co-wrote the story. And there's a scene with uh, Jonathan Kent, uh, Clark Kent's adopted um, uh, his father, adopted father, and Clark. I, I think from what I gather, he had saved some kids in a in a bus crash. I think a, a bus crash into the water, and he, and he saved all the kids. And um, Jonathan Kent uh, is talking to him, and he says, "You, you know, your secret. Some some along the lines where your secret is so important, Clark. We, you, you know, you can never forget that." And Clark says, what, am I supposed to let him die? And uh, he pauses, he looks down, Jonathan Kent says, maybe. And that one word has just exploded across the internet. Uh, you got people saying, oh my God, he would never say that. Jonathan Kent would never say that. He wouldn't, you know, kill those kids. You know, so is Jonathan Kent a, 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 a kid killer? And they're condemning him for all these things. And, and my take is that I just saw a father uh, placing the value of his son, his well-being above other kids above everyone else, and uh, I, I wonder how long. Um, I, I wonder how far they're going to go with that. I wonder yeah, if, it's, well, if it's just a slip. I'm wondering if they're going to explain it that way in the movie, or if they're going to say the greater good possibly would be served by Superman keeping his identity but as secret as possible, so that he can save possibly. so many more people. I see about that is uh, that's a, a moment in in the trailer. Right. You know, it's not there by accident. They edited the hell out of, out of this thing and they put it in there. And I thought it was powerful. I thought, first of all, it's a great trailer, but that was the most powerful moment to me. 
Well, and it was a great thing for them to do, regardless of how it's handled in the right. movie. Why? Because it started this Absolutely conversation right. going. So I'm looking forward to the movie as well. That is something that will help us, I think, I hope, preserve uh, our yeah. sense of life. But we are out of time yeah. here. So everybody... So I can't talk about it more? The Man of Steel? <laughs> what? There's not that much to talk about, but yeah, go check out the trailer online. Yeah, check it because out. It, it is a very strong tailor, trailer. Uh you know, in in the online chat room, people can continue to this, the discussion about the distraction topic that we just had. There's a lot of good things being saying there, but we do have to go uh, during the week. If you want to continue the conversation, you can either go to leave a comment on this show to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. So yeah, any comments about the show, this show in particular, go to don'tletitgo.com and leave a comment there. Uh, you can also go to the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook where I often share and discuss stories throughout the week. You can actually follow me. You can subscribe to me on Facebook. I have public posts that I put out there sometime. I'm on Twitter. On Twitter. But most important, if you like the show, please spread the word. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night. We'll talk next week. <laughs>